I'm Rosemary with the Catholic Information Center. I'm here with editor and publisher of The Lamp magazine, uh, Matthew Walter and William Bowman. The Lamp is a new bi-monthly Catholic political magazine. And today we're here to talk about none other than faith, politics, and culture alongside Professor Michael Hanby and, Prof and Professor Robert Wiley. Um, to start us off, it's going to be Father Bill Daly. He's going to start the conversation off with a litany of St. Joseph. Um, I don't want to halt the conversation, so um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Here I am. Sorry, I had my video off by accident. Um, but So here's my face. I'm Rosemary. Um, Father Bill, uh, why don't you go ahead and start us off with the uh, St. Joseph litany? We're gonna get his um, video on here. Or any prayer you would like to offer, Father. Yes, I, as we discussed, I thought we would have some Newman. And then I thought it's the um, great feast of St. Matthew today, propitiously. So, um, so I'll read what probably very familiar to everyone here, but familiar texts are not a problem. So we'll have uh, a kind of excerpted form of uh, Newman's some definite service as most people know it by, and then his kind of uh, beautiful uh, sort of valediction for the day. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. I am a link in a chain a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, while not intending it, if I do but keep his commandments. Therefore, I will trust him. Whatever I am, I can never be thrown away. If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. He does nothing in vain. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirits sink, hide my future from me. Still, he knows what he is about. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging and holy rest and peace at the last. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And I hand it over to Matt now. Thank you so much, Father, for sharing those wonderful words uh, from St. John Henry Newman. It reminds me, actually, of... Uh, when I first got to knew, know you last fall in Rome, uh, when I was there for uh, Newman's canonization. Um, and Newman in some ways is a, a fitting uh, place to start thinking and talking about the lamp, uh, this project in front of us. Amusingly enough, um, the 
19th century periodical called The Lamp, from which we've stolen our name, competed briefly with Newman when he was the editor of a Catholic periodical called The Rambler. Um, the Lamp had a lot more subscribers than The Rambler because it was sold for much cheaper. Uh, it would be impossible to match the scale they were able to meet in those days. I think The Lamp cost a penny. Uh, those of you who are subscribers know that it goes for slightly more than that now. But um, anyway, what I'd really like to do uh, to begin here is just to introduce uh, this project to those of you who are not already familiar with it as uh, subscribers or people who have read things on the website. Um, Billy, when would you say that we first started talking about this idea? Um, so Matthew and I, Matthew is the editor and I'm the publisher, and we had been kicking around the idea of a magazine in general, a Catholic magazine for, I don't know, five years. Um, but we didn't come to concrete discussions of uh, what it would look like and what the name would be. I think that's where we started until probably January, February of 2019. And you didn't like the name at first. No, I, I think that there were a number of people that you ran it by, uh, and I'm not sure any of them liked it. But No, I think I went 0 for 5 or 0 for 10 or maybe even 0 for 15. Uh, the closest I came was someone who said, well, I don't know, new magazines don't always have the definite article there. What if you just called it LAMP? But now, I mean, as you said, it's hard to imagine it being called anything else. I'm, I'm grateful that we don't have one of those uh, Latin names we don't even understand that are so tempting to so many Catholics. That's right, where you have to copy and paste the name. Um, but Billy, in some ways, your, your, um, your perspective is even more more interesting than mine because as the publisher you're uh, looking down benevolently sometimes with annoyance uh, at my numerous follies as editor um, I'm almost too in the thick of things to uh, to talk about what it is that we think of as our editorial vision or why why the magazine exists but um, two issues in what what would you say um, I think we're trying to give uh, a substantive magazine to a lay but educated Catholic readership, um, which as best we can does not uh, lean right or left uh, to any political persuasion and offers um, commentary on, you know, ideas, literature, the arts um, from an eclectic but not schizophrenic perspective. We try to be uh, as broad as we can be. Um, and I think we've discovered uh, that there is a huge appetite for that. Um, we started this project in earnest, I would say uh, in July of 2019, I think on the day after I, I got back from my honeymoon. And uh, we put up a GoFundMe with nothing but you know a sales pitch and a black and white graphic that I had mocked up in MS Paint with a little lamp lighter and a goofy logo on it. 
Um, and we raised what, $22,000 in a matter of weeks. Um, and from yep. there, it took us a couple of months to put a website together and get uh, the subscription forms put together. Um, we hired a designer and not quite a year from our, our first murmurings in the public about the lamp, we, we sent out our first issue. Um, and just, I think last month we went over a thousand subscribers, which was a, a far faster rate of growth than we had ever anticipated. I think that when we were talking about this a year ago, we thought maybe by 2021, after we'd put out our first issue a year hence, um, we might get to that kind of volume. So, I mean, we've been surprised, encouraged, and heartened by uh, the amount of support we've been able to generate just from regular Catholics who are interested, uh, also a handful of Protestants, uh, Hindus, Zoroastrians, um, people of every color. We run a, a kind of weekly newsletter that takes the temperature on a, a number of very silly topics in a poll that we have. Um, usually it's a question about what condiments do you like in your hot dog and uh, what kind of pronunciation do you use for different words? But we also learn a lot about our readership um, and it's predominantly uh, youngish, 25 to 45, uh, you know, lay Catholics who are interested in a print magazine. It's been incredible to see that um, the vision that we thought ought to exist is shared by so many. So I suppose, I guess I should just um, talk a little bit about our plans for the rest of the evening here. We are lucky enough to be joined um, not only by uh, Father Daly here, but by two contributors to our second issue, uh, one of whom is uh, Michael Hanby, who wrote a wonderful piece that is uh, far too clever for me to summarize in this space on um, the problem of what you could call post-politics in America today. And uh, by Robert Wiley, who wrote a piece on George Eliot. Uh, those of you who don't know this, spoiler alert, George was a woman. Um, so anyway, um, I was thinking that uh, we could just start with, um, with Michael here who could talk to us a little bit about the wonderful piece he wrote for us. Uh, well, thanks, Matthew. And I mean, first of all, congratulations uh, to you guys on an extraordinary achievement. I was one of those people that you canvassed. Um, I don't know, I guess it was sometime in the spring of 2019. Um, and I think I might have expressed uh, uh, some doubts or what have you, which have been um, completely uh, flummoxed by what you've done in the first two issues. It's a beautiful magazine, first of all. It's absolutely visually stunning. Um, and that's great, um, but also the, the, the quality of the things you've published so far, have, um, uh, perhaps accepting my article, uh, have been, uh, uh, has been extraordinary. So well done. Um, um, so um, let's see, it's, it's hard to know um, what to say uh, about the article that wasn't, that wasn't in the article. I guess um, uh, the way I would describe it is as my attempt uh, to try and understand uh, the meaning of this sort of strange moment of in history and, and, and unique moment in history that we seem to be in, which as I'm sure uh, 
anyone who's any of you who are, are writing about current events know is very much a moving target. Um, you know, I, I already feel as if there are uh, things in the article that are obsolete, <laughs> uh, things that I would do uh, a bit differently if I were writing it today rather than in the first of July. You know, I was joking with a friend of mine that you, you know you have to hurry up and put things out because you're not sure that the institutions that you're writing about will continue to exist uh, by the time things reach publication. But um, my conviction is that that neither um, the sort of conventional uh, liberal categories of, of ordinary American political discourse, or for that matter, the obligatory pieties of, of, of woke anti-racism are adequate to understand the full scope of, what's, of, of what we're undergoing um, in the culture. And it, it seems to me, just to get to the, to the real heart of it, um, that we are in the process of destroying the fundamental preconditions for political society. Um, most basically, a world shared in common um, uh, with a, uh, the, the presumption of a common nature uh, that is uh, recognizable in some pre-theoretical way, uh, uh, a common uh, language, a common uh, history, um, a shared order of reason. You know, Americans by and large at the moment uh, seem to pretty deeply hate one another uh, on opposite sides of the spectrum. And increasingly we are finding it uh, all but impossible uh, even really to speak intelligibly to one another. Uh, certainly we speak at one another, but that just, uh, you know, those things fly by. And so um, it, it seems to me that the, the inevitable logical result of that, uh, though I hope, uh, you know, our better natures will intervene or, uh, uh, you know, the Lord will have something in uh, uh, surprise, a pleasant surprise in store for us. But it seems to me that the log obvious logical conclusion of that is uh, a pretty serious defragmentation and violence, which we're already, of course, um, seeing. Um, and this process has been underway for a long time and has many different sources um, and is already pretty far advanced, but obviously the, the you know, brutal killing of George Floyd and the, the aftermath of, uh, of those events um, have uh, allowed a number of things to, to, to coalesce. Um, and have brought to the surface uh, what was, I think, uh, only subtly below the surface, uh, namely a, a kind of nihilism um, that we really uh, have not seen before um, in this culture, um, which is a, a, a very worrisome thing. And a nihilism that seems to have as its object the thing that needs to be destroyed, really um, order of any kind. Um, any antecedent order, any antecedent uh, shared understanding uh, of reality. And this is not to say that this isn't also about uh, racial justice. Of course it is. And I don't doubt, uh, 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 I, don't, I don't begrudge uh, a lot of the anger, nor doubt the, the, the sincerity of, of, of many of the people who are participating in these things. But I think there's something much still bigger uh, uh, going on. And, you know, and the destruction of the foundations of political order then mean that we'll be governed by something other than political order. Um, and that's really where the, the sort of notion of a post-politics come in. The, the idea uh, that there are ways of taking social action uh, 
exerting uh, what you might call social or political causation, uh, which simply bypass uh, the institutions of democratic society, uh, of, of um, political deliberation, um, and, and what have you. And these will largely be, and are, I think, largely um, uh, technological. I think we are deeply responsive to uh, uh, a technological order that is kind of an order of necessity for us. Uh, we have a proliferation of means for which the ends aren't even clear. I doubt that the guys, uh, I assume they were guys who invented Twitter, uh, really meant that it would be what it has become. Uh, and yet um, uh, it's now the public square. Um, and the decision about whether to be on it or not is the decision about whether to be a public person, really. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the, the digital uh, world is, is uh, an obvious face of uh, a post-political technological order. And sometimes it takes even a more human face when it coalesces into actual mobs. Um, but there's also a biopolitical uh, uh, face that I didn't really talk about in the article, but that had in mind or only alluded to here and there. Uh, which I suspect, uh, which was also already uh, in motion. I take a lot of the uh, the sexual politics that we are uh, in the sexual revolution in its present stage to really be a form of biopolitics. Um, but obviously, uh, the the COVID pandemic uh, and the various kind of measures and the various kinds of technologically facilitated measures that we have introduced to mitigate this and that may be with us for a long time, forms of surveillance, uh, et cetera, um, uh, are also uh, very worrisome. So I'm afraid it's not a very hopeful piece. Um, it, it's, uh, I, I, I'm not very hopeful, um, uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, at least about uh, our national future. Um, of course, as Catholics, that's not the ultimate thing we have to hope in. And you know, a, lo a lot of my work has been about trying to uh, help us remember that. So that's basically it in a nutshell. I mean, there, there are other things in it, obviously, that, uh, that I didn't mention that maybe we can talk about at some point. But does that suffice to summarize it? Yeah. And, you know, what I was struck by thinking about this is how um, when we first talked about what would eventually become the peace, at some point, what we had agreed on was that maybe you would write something about technology and Catholic social teaching. So when you uh, think about the role that technology plays in creating these kind of post-political conditions and sustaining them, what do you think so far um, the church, especially from, from the top down, um, Pope Francis and some of his, um, some documents that he has released, um, has told us about, you know, what Heidegger would call, you know, the problem concerning technology. Right, right. Um, well, I have, I've been toying with this kind of theory actually that um, uh, I had to do a paper on um, the 50th anniversary of, uh, anniversary of Humani VT a couple of years back. Uh, and I approached it, approached it from this perspective and it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, beginning with about the Second Vatican Council up through the pontificates of John Paul II, Benedict XVI, um, it's possible to read a coherent strand 
of magisterial teaching that has as its central problem um, the problem of, of, you know, to put it in encyclical language, um, man in a technological age. Um, you know, we tend to look at this principally through uh, the lens of economics, uh, or um, on the one hand, or with the case of the the biotechnical stuff and and, and humani vitae through the lens of uh, uh, the church's moral teaching, and particularly, we tend to confine it to the realm of its of, of the moral teaching in sexual matters, and I think that actually blinds us uh, to some of what. Uh, uh, these teachings are about at present. Laudato Si, um, what is it, the second or the third chapter, it seems to me, the one that has uh, Guardini at the heart of it and where he introduces, where Pope Francis introduces the technological paradigm, uh, seems to me to be uh, uh, an advancement of that uh, line of magisterial teaching uh, and, and to hold all sort of fruitful stuff. Now, having said that, uh, or, or also hold forth all sorts of, uh, uh, fruitful, promising um, things. Having said that, I will say, you know, one of the peculiarities of living in a technological society is that is that we know how to do things that we don't know how to think about. And we acquire the capacity to do them. We acquire means before we understand even really what ends they're for, as I said before. And so while I do think there is a, a promising strand of magisterial teaching that really needs to be uh, thought through and unpacked in light of recognizing this as, a, as an, a, a fundamental problem of the modern era, I also think we're behind. You know, it's the start of, it's, it's, it's early fourth quarter and we're down a couple of scores. Uh, to put it in the language of something we were talking about earlier. So the, um, that was my first attempt to um, wring something hopeful out of your piece, which I thought was both brilliant and pessimistic and correct. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you about briefly that you hadn't alluded to was almost a kind of um, coda near the end where you talked about, um, you know, as a sort of backdrop to um, the racial unrest in this country this year about the, uh, the role of the, the black church in America so yeah, I think Catholics don't talk about and don't understand, and especially don't understand the um, its its value and significance. Well, I mean, I kind of you know bow before its value and significance. I don't, certainly don't claim to have a a, a thorough grasp or, or or understanding of it, but I think as 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 a former Protestant myself, um, and as um, uh, a southerner, and I've, I've spent some time here and there. Uh, it's been a while in in black churches, uh, and also when I studied uh, uh, at Duke, right, I mean, one of the, two of my most the, the people who influenced me most profoundly there um, uh, approached this theological questions from the perspective of the black church. And um, I mean, first of all, it seems to me that the 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 historic civil rights movement is unintelligible without it. Right. And um, the the fact that, um, you know, we have a sort of progressive liberal uh, what well, we had up until the day before yesterday, a kind of progressive liberal narrative of inevitable progress in the realization of our founding principles. And it was very easy to assimilate in that story um, 
the, the civil rights movement to a set of secular presuppositions. But of course, um, Martin Luther King's being a, a Baptist minister was not incidental to, to how he saw reality. Uh, and it seems to me that simply um, the remarkable fact of, of black Christianity in a country um, uh, where you know, African-Americans have been historically so badly mistreated and, 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 and in which it was possible for them to take over uh, and modify you know, the religion of those who had oppressed them, um, that, that it has made possible historically in America and in the black community in America, just a remarkable degree of grace. Um, I think I referred to what I, the, the phrase uh, I think I used in the article was a kind of uh, supernatural humanity. Um, uh, gr grace towards those um, who uh, and the descendants of those who had oppressed them, but also the grace to you know, ascend from um, historically some of the worst um, conditions that human beings have had to endure um, to make to, uh, to, to build a culture and to contribute to a culture. And I, I just don't think um, the role of of uh, African-American Christianity in this country is adequately appreciated uh, for what it has contributed, uh, what, is given, what it has given both African-Americans and the country as a whole. And I think that the, the departure of the new anti-racism um, from those roots um, is producing a very different kind of, uh, of um, movement. One in which I'm not sure there's redemption possible for anyone. Thank you so much, uh, Michael, both uh, for being here tonight and, and for your piece. Um, where is that Dr. Willie fellow? Hey, Rob, do you wanna talk to us about, about George Eliot, that dude, why we, why Catholics should be interested in him and in that spider fighting guy. The spider fighting guy meaning Spinoza. So that's a, it's a pretty arcane reference to the cholerist biography there. So yeah, well, well done. It's pretty literate for a, for a magazine editor there. Um, I, I, I want to echo what professor Hanby said, uh, you know, about the lamp, uh, See so a project I think that's really exciting, um, and it's a, it's a, it's an artifact that's that's beautiful. It's just really well made, and it's a pleasure when it comes in the mailbox. Um, I'm a, uh, and to thank you, of course, for having me on this evening uh, with someone as distinguished as as Professor Hand, uh, as well as yourselves, who it's always a pleasure to see. Um, I'm a political theorist. I'm a pretty newly minted political theorist uh, from, from Notre Dame. And uh, um, I, one of the things I appreciate about the lamp is I think that uh, Catholics have a hard time um, not being citizens, like democratic citizens of the church uh, and not as, or assembling like a, um, like a church rather than assembling like a critical, like a critical public. Um, and I think this makes it difficult for um, um, all sorts of Catholics who, 
who approach the church as if we're a public sphere. Um, it's sort of, and I think it's difficult for magazines and uh, Catholic magazines as well. And the lamp, I think, does a nice job of being uh, pointing to Christian unity, being unapologetic uh, about what Catholics believe. Um, some of the things Professor Hanby said uh, that point that our that our times are times of uh, of deep particularism, of deep pluralism, of identity, um, and that that Catholics should be uncomfortable in these times because we hope for a kind of unity, and we hope for a kind of uh, Particular, we hope for a kind of difference that doesn't go all the way down. We, we hope we all share uh, a destiny with, you know, the destiny of salvation with our, with our fellow man. Um, I, I think the lamp is also excellent because it's, as Billy said earlier, uh, eclectic. And I know Matthew is uh, a sort of, oh, hey, Thisbe. You don't interrupt me. This is my time to shine, kiddo. Um, that the lamp is eclectic and Matthew is a kind of, uh, a kind of Victorianist. Uh, and he asked me to write a review of um, George Eliot's 1856 translation of Spinoza's Ethics, which was only brought out last year um, by Princeton University Press uh, under the very capable editing of uh, Claire Carlyle, who's uh, uh, a professor who's I, I know better as a Kierkegaard scholar uh, and I have a kind of deep love for Kierkegaard and possibly that's where my suspicion of the public sphere and Christians assembling as a public sphere rather than a church, probably that comes from Kierkegaard. But, I, but I, I'm, a, I'm a Spinoza scholar. I wrote my dissertation on Spinoza. Um, and one thing I find that's pretty amazing is that uh, George Eliot is probably one of the best educated English people uh, of the 19th century. Um, uh, she she's translates Feuerbach for the first time into English. She translates Spinoza's Ethics for the first time um, into English. She's engaged in the, uh, the Rose Hill Circle. She's engaged in, you know, she's Herbert Spencer's maybe on again, off again lover, uh, we think. Um, and and she's, she's in the thick of sort of English progressive thought at the time. Uh, and yet when you read George Eliot's novels, uh, she's a, she's a, she comes out as a sort of critic, uh, not only of Feuerbach and a forward thinking, you know, free thinking atheism, but also of Spinoza. And she criticizes Spinoza's idea that the world can be completely understood. Uh, her novels suggest all sorts of reasons why the world can't be completely understood. All sorts of reasons why the tragic, she had a great love for the Greeks, for instance, why, why the tragic will perdure uh, in the world. And she was an admirer of Newman um, whom I know Matthew admires uh, very deeply as well, um, and and which is surprising again given some of her priors. Um, but she she turns out in her novels to be a great critic of of Spinoza, as I said, and of science and of this world that can be fully understood. Uh, and that's something that really captured my imagination to delve a little deeper uh, into her Spinoza scholarship to to see where that uh, where that critique came from. Because in in Eliot's case, it doesn't come from Christianity. Um, but it comes from a sort of Victorian um, post-secular idea that the world can't be totally understood and maybe there must be a place for religion even if, even if it wasn't, uh, you know, tragically wasn't something she could believe in. Uh, and I, I appreciated the opportunity to do so. I, I thought it was interesting, so hopefully other people did too. Thank you, Rob. Um, thank you again for writing the piece. Billy, I was thinking that um, 
we could turn it over for uh, questions here since it looks like people have some. Um, do you want to go ahead and start to take those and uh, we can discuss them among ourselves? The f I'll actually start with the first one. one. One person in the audience on YouTube asks whether my pink chair here is reserved for Jesus. The answer is no, it's reserved for my wife because we don't have a real TV in this house, just one of those little boxes that has a tape player in it uh, for the kids to watch Disney movies. So when we watch football, she sits here and I sit here. So not quite our savior, but my wife, and if we have a kind of hierarchy of estimable personages, certainly an exalted one. What else do we have there, Billy? Wilhelm? Yeah, so it looks like we have another question for you um, asking whether we publish poetry, uh, what we would look for in it if we were to. That's a difficult question and one that I get a lot. The simplest answer is, is yes, that going forward, we have some plans to publish poetry. In fact, technically speaking, we already have. We had a very, very funny uh, parody in the last issue. Um, our hesitation about branching out into poetry and short stories and that sort of thing, one of them has just been that you either need to do it every issue more or less or not at all. And uh, that means that there has to be a consistent kind of steady stream of quality. Um, and it looks like that's something that, uh, that we're going to be able to go ahead and do. As far as what we would be looking for in poetry, I mean, the main quality, and I think the test of any poem is whether having read it, you remember any of it. You know, uh, there's so there's a whole cottage industry of of new poetry and sort of moaning about the values of Western civilization from all these people. And they say, look, it even rhymes and scans. Blah, blah, blah. And I say, OK, can you rattle off some lines from it then? And I have never met anyone, including very distinguished people who do this kind of thing for a living. Uh, who could pass the test. So make it memorable. That would be that would be the main quality we're looking for. So I have a question here that, well, I'll read the question first. Does technology such as Twitter's character limit or the ready aim fire ethic that pervades social media, does it degrade the quality of argument and how does one fix that? Um, so if I may, I'm gonna pass that one off to Dr. Wiley. Who doesn't have Twitter, I think, so. Yeah. Prolific user of social media. Answer. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, um, I, I don't know about, say, Twitter's character limit. Um, but you could I, pass I, this on to television, cable news, anything that kind of produces yeah, there are a lot of life. there are a lot of things on the internet that I think get eyeballs because they provoke a visceral reaction and I think it's uh, possibly most useful to think about um, the internet as a as a visceral medium um, that uh, 
is designed um, uh, to produce intense reactions. Uh, so your various Facebook reactions, I don't know what the algorithms are, but the, the more intense your sort of emotional reaction, the more its algorithm will share it around. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Professor Hanby said something, I, he should chime in on this because he's thought uh, very deeply about technology and, and politics. But he said that, um, you know, um, we, we, we don't want to condemn anger. Uh, there's a place for anger, anger is a good thing. There's a place for the passions. Um, there's a place for passionate politics and the kind of uh, the sort of social medium or the sort of social media out there that intensify uh, these passions. Um, but maybe they're not the best for a uh, reasoned argument. Um, maybe not, they're not the best for producing um, human beings who are uh, resilient um, and who are, uh, have, have self-restraint and self-possession um, and, and don't, you know, fire back right away. Uh, I, uh, I, I read and think, uh, uh, the Korean German, uh, political theorist, Byung-Chul Han is particularly interesting on social media. And he has a book, a small chapbook, the Stanford university press out called in the swarm, um, which I think is interesting. Um, uh, professor Hanby, do you have any thoughts about that that are deeper than mine? Oh, I don't know about deeper than yours, but I, I have a few. I, let, me, let me try for one shallower than yours. I mean, I, I, I think um, that with respect to something like 140 character limit, I mean, clearly the medium shapes uh, the, the, the message and obviously in profound ways. One of the things it's done is made very people, people very witty and clever, actually. I mean, there is a lot of, uh, um, but it's also like sort of staring into the palantir and having Sauron staring back at you all the time and, and, um, and having this voice continually whispering in your ear. I mean, I, I, I've, I've, it's an interesting counterfactual to wonder how um, all of this social unrest on the one hand um, and the social panic um, uh, surrounding the pandemic on the other hand would be different um, if we didn't have the voice of the internet whispering in all of our ears all the time. Um, and, and, and if we didn't use these devices to mediate reality so completely for us, uh, and if we weren't always plugged into them. I mean, I really do think that it is uh, systemically uh, inducing, uh, th th living this way, um, uh, living waiting to be provoked, uh, or perpetually provoked throughout the day by either watching, you know, the world crumble in real time as the as the the numbers are being um, tallied up on the uh, the pandemic, or uh, little snippets of video from Kenosha or wherever. Um, the, the 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 constant barrage uh, that that we are experiencing with that, I I really do think is inducing a kind of social insanity uh, that uh, we haven't thought through very well yet and i just we're add, in the middle of it i just add there very briefly that um of course it has good effects it has good effects of bringing abuses of power to light uh when they're caught on a cell phone video um which you know many of the um angering events of this summer of course were um but on the other hand there's a phenomenon of auto surveillance where we surveil ourselves 
um, and share that. And, and there's an expectation, you know, you've probably heard this, the view uh, that, uh, or the, the meme out there that silence is violence, for example. It's interesting to interrogate whether that's true um, and whether sometimes, you know, um, a, a slower form of political reflection might be appropriate. Um, the, other, the other interesting thing about it is that it, um, it catalyzes events. Um, you know, I think back to uh, the, the episode with the kids from Covington Catholic. Um, uh, there's a snippet of video uh, that went viral and set several sort of balls rolling in motion. And you could describe um, uh, some of the things that are going on right now in the same way, but the, the, it, it catalyzes events um, where it's very difficult to identify the agency of the, uh, the agents of the event. Um, so it, it, it sets sort of political causation in motion without real responsible political actors. You know, it's hard to hold anyone in particular accountable or responsible uh, for what something gone viral ends up producing in the world. Um, and so that's another aspect actually of what I meant by a sort of post-political rule. It's that it's a, it, if we're, it, it has a tendency to produce a kind of tyranny without an actual tyrant. Uh, you know, the, 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 the tyranny of a, of a, of a system uh, that induces this auto surveillance, surveillance in us. So, all right, I'll stop on this. So our next question here is actually from uh, Father Daly, whom we have on the broadcast here. So I'll let him go ahead and ask. Question is for Michael. I'm pleased to say I, uh, after all of my move from Ireland to the United States, I managed to subscribe to the LAMP um, for issue two. I'm one of these people that is, you know, forever will be pining for the physical copy of issue one. But um, I did enjoy your piece, Michael. This is not a hostile question, but I'm, I'm thinking of what a person who would be hostile to it might ask. Because the, the thing about nihilism is it's a big concept and it feels like a heavy charge. And it's one that people who think about the world the way you and I do tend to naturally charge. But I found myself, and, and, and not for the first time, wondering, what do we really mean by it? And I was, I was feeling like Gerard Manley Hopkins, who used to live next to where I lived in Dublin. And one might say the problem with nihilism is it nothings. And, so, you know, a lot of people would say to me in, the, in a pub, if I were dressed as I am now, after they had had several pints, um, the great religious question of Ireland today, which is running on the fumes of Catholic culture. Oh, you know, doesn't every religion just boil down to being nice? And I think they would say, look, I don't believe in nothingness. I'm not a nihilist. I think there's being nice. And the problem is when you get more serious than being nice, then you think you're supposed to tell people whom to marry and whom to sleep with and all that, but, and that's not nice. So I'm no nihilist. Why, why, what's a helpful way to help people see that they're surrounded by nihilism if they feel like they're, they're not, they're just nice? Um, yeah, there's actually, uh, oh, I can't think of the authors, an, an article that I have my students read on, on nice nihilism actually. Uh, by some, uh, 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 I don't know whether they're 
Darwinian biologists who dabble in analytic philosophy or analytic philosophers who dabble in, in uh, neo-Darwinian biology. But anyhow, uh, that's neither here nor there. Well, one of the distinctions I, I, I would want to make, I think, is um, between a kind of subjective and objective nihilism, first of all, in the sense that uh, in, in talking about um, the, the nihilism set loose in our culture, it's not necessarily an ascription of motive uh, to anyone in particular. That that, uh, although I do think uh, it, it may be a fitting ascription to motive of of of, of some people, but I, I don't want to deny uh, the sincerity of anyone's. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm perfectly willing to grant the sincerity of anyone's convictions who th who is um, who thinks they're fighting for uh, justice of whatever kind, however uh, well or poorly conceived. Um, it's more a question of uh, the basic logic of um, of opposition. Um, uh, and it's also a question of, of um, how do I want to put this? It, it has deep roots in the way that we tend to think of freedom uh, and, the, and the way in which we tend to juxtapose it uh, to order of every kind. So that um, uh, the acknowledgement of uh, a, a truth in common or a nature shared in common um, uh, for example, um, are taken as kind of restrictions on my capacity to determine myself, rather than as the origin, the given origins of that my capacity to determine or to determine myself. And so there are all kinds of movements afoot in the culture, and I'm not principally thinking about uh, uh, the the questions concerning concerning race that that attack at the very heart uh, of the idea that there is. Um, an order of reality that precedes us, and that that and that determines us in some way, and that that's not in itself an act of violence. And it seems to me that there are all kinds of ways um, uh, in the the in the sexual sphere. Um, uh, oddly enough, also I think in the in, in the scientific and technological sphere, where um, the 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 notion of uh, a prior given order um, is taken automatically as something to be overcome. And that to me is, in, in, in its very logic, uh, is nihilating. That is to say, it, you know, it negates um, uh, that order, it negates the given, negates nature and, and so forth, and negates reason. Um, so the reason itself is oftentimes now taken to be a kind of um, merely merely an assertion of the will to power, and, I, and you see elements of that in all different kinds of theories that 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 um, uh, aspire to be about good things. So I don't know if that's um, uh, at all clarifying, but um, for sure, great. All right, I am going to roll up a couple of questions that are specific to the magazine. Um, so one reader is asking if the lamp will examine both current and historical aspects of Catholic culture, arts and literature. One is uh, asking if there are any big topics or perspectives that we feel like we haven't covered in the magazine so far. 
Um, another is asking what makes us distinctive in the world of other magazines, religious magazines. Um, and if uh, Matthew could speak to the decision to publish uh, in print versus online or digital um, and whether print is the future of Catholic journalism. So I'm gonna to try to hit a couple of these and then I'll hand it off to you, Matthew. Um, so I think that we, we've been trying to address both current and historical aspects uh, of Catholic culture, arts, literature, but I mean of culture, arts, and literature generally and the things beyond those. Um, I mean, it, even on this panel, uh, Professor Handy was speaking about, uh, or his article is more related to current events and Dr. Wiley's is um, from a 19th century translation of two people who have been long dead, but have some obvious relevance. Um, and I think we've been trying to cover that in uh, future issues. Um, in the second issue, there was one essay about St. Uh, Louis the Ninth, and one about the video game series Dragon Warrior. Yeah, so I, I think we're trying to straddle it, <laughs> um, the gap as best we can, or even ignore the gap. Um, and to the same to the same note. Uh, there are plenty of big topics and perspectives I think we haven't covered. We've, we've published, I think, 104 pages of mostly small font print. Um, but if we could increase the size of the magazine, I would love to. And we've got, um, I don't know, three additional issues already planned, uh, full of stuff that we, I don't actually do any of this work. Matthew handles all the content of the magazine, but we, we're, we're stuffed with ideas. Um, much more to come. Um, I would say that uh, the decision to publish in print was really an editorial creative decision. We decided that um, for a new magazine, uh, I, I think a lot of the places that were reverting to print or reverting to uh, digital journalism were established places looking for new audiences. Um, but as a, as a new publication, we wanted to create something that was uh, unique and not just uh, a website, not just a blog, um, not, but something that uh, in our view could be held as a physical object and appreciated as such. Uh, so we put a lot of effort into finding the right designer who did a brilliant job for us. Um, we found an illustrator for the first couple of issues who I think uh, fits the tone of the magazine perfectly. Um, and I, I mean, I, the response that we've gotten has been that um, it's not just worth reading, but it's worth having on the shelf too. Uh, and I think that not just for, for Catholic journalism, but um, in a world where there are plenty of options to read things without using pr printed paper, um, having made the effort to make it something that's uh, a nice experience and a nice object really uh, sets you apart and makes it worthwhile. Um, Matthew, what about, what do you think? Uh, we've got, what makes us distinctive? Yeah, so in, in a lot of ways, those, all those questions sort of come in well together, um, along with another one that we just got here, which is, how deeply into practical politics do you think the lamp will dive in coming months? Somebody pointed out to me recently, you know, so we published two issues here. Number three is basically put to bed. Uh, and uh, we've got stuff commissioned for four and five and six and beyond. 
But uh, before that, while we were in the process of uh, rolling out the magazine, we used to, we were publishing these weekly newsletters. So really, there's a continuous sort of stream of stuff from us going back to last July. And one person who has never been mentioned in any of these communications or in the magazine is the current president of the United States. Um, and I think to some extent that's a, a conscious decision because frankly, there is no other space, digital or printed, uh, that is not almost totally colonized by the president and the sort of weird meta discourse surrounding him and the things he says and does and tweets about and so on. So I'm just, I'm just not sure that we could add to that very meaningfully. So I think for the most part, we don't tend to get uh, much into the nitty gritty of politics. Uh, and that includes ecclesiastical politics, by the way. One of the things that I think makes us um, distinct just in Catholic media is that we're really not terrifically interested in sort of horse race stuff about how can you believe uh, one of these greasy Italian monsignors said this or did this? Can you believe that? Can you believe that there are some bishops who are really great and uh, holy and orthodox and there are some who are kind of dim-witted and there are some who are the vast majority, no doubt, who are just kind of company men in between. Uh, these, these are just things that I don't think I can see us ever really being interested in. Um, we're interested on the one hand in taking a, a longer view um, in a, a piece like uh, Michael's, but also on the other hand in a piece um, like one from our first issue that I really like, which is where Brandon McGinley uh, talked about a man who served, uh, spent many decades in prison uh, for a crime of which he was not really guilty. It was an unjust sentence. And um, I think we're interested in telling stories like that that um, are sort of uh, smaller than, um, you know, petty political stuff, but also in, in things that in some sense are larger. There's a couple of more questions already asking about the specific uh, design choices that we've made going into the, the, the print magazine. Um, so one of the funny things about having an ancestor or a, um, a magazine we're stealing the name from is that we could also steal their logo um, and our tagline also, the Catholic Journal of Literature, Arts, Science, et cetera, is from the, the same lamp um, from which we took the, the name. And uh, I, I don't think the content is really all that similar. Um, the original lamp was uh, published primarily for people interested in, in Catholic perspectives on scientific issues. I think it was published weekly for Matthew mentioned a penny. Um, but we, we did borrow, uh, the, as I said, the logo, the tagline, and kind of the general feeling of a more old-timey magazine, um, also through Matthew's experience in magazines for the past decade. Uh, and the, the coloring choices for the spines, 
are intended to be going forward liturgical, right, Matthew? That's right. The red was kind of a weird accident. We weren't really sure when we we designed the first issue what the naming conventions for each one would be and so on. If we had thought about it, we would have come up with some kind of white or gold or whatever. But by the time we had settled on Easter, um, you know, it was it was sort of too late. Um, but with assumption and the blue, obviously, um, that was tied to that feast. And that's something we intend to continue going forward. Actually, the, the third issue is um, going to be Christ the King. And so what we end up going with is a kind of marigold. Um, but as far as the aesthetic choices, you know, the fonts and design and that sort of thing, this is why you hire a brilliant designer because as Billy remembers, pretty much what I did was just email the guy who ended up becoming our designer and say, hey, um, we would like a sort of oldie timey magazine. Uh, I want to use, uh, repurpose some old magazine illustrations. Um, I want it to be a nice old fashioned looking serif font. Uh, I want it to be text heavy. Um, what can you do? And basically he sent us back something that looks like the magazine as it appears in front of you. So while it's very beautiful, I'm afraid neither of us really deserves a whole lot of credit for it. The one place I can claim credit is that uh, I pushed hard for the illustration, which I'm glad that we went through with. We were considering dropping the cover illustrations and doing a kind of table of contents for the whole page. And I think that the illustrator we have has done a really striking job. But yeah, I mean, we've, we've been fortunate to find such enthusiastic and talented people to work with. Um, so I think we have time for maybe just one or two more questions. Uh, one of them is, this is for the whole panel, uh, if we have time. Um, can we suggest some ways that members of the Catholic media, public sphere, church, uh, can, can elevate the level of discourse given the leveling effect of technology and social media? Um, can I ask you, Rob, what do you think about the difference between Catholics as a church versus Catholics as a, as a public body would say to this? Well, I'd probably just echo what Matthew said, which is sort of my sentiment exactly. Uh, I, I don't feel the need to have a view on every uh, horse race issue of ecclesiastical politics. That's why people like Father Bill take on the cloth, the rest of them. Yeah. yeah, some things, if there's a great abuse in the church, if you have to speak up about it, you know, there's a role for the laity, of course, but it's not everything. And it's, you know, there's, could be totally stimulated into making church politics your kind of hobby. And is that what it means to be a good Catholic? I don't think so. Um, so rather to take a perspective on things more long-term or on, you know, on, on issues that affect real people that are sort of smaller than that, as Matthew said. Um, so I, I think it's, yeah, a way of, to elevate the discourse is to think about what you can really think about and speak about that matters and not get drawn into every um, 
you know, every political issue after, you know, at which point it's, you know, like being a member of one of our political parties is similar to being a member of the church, you know, where you have positions on various things. I don't think that's what it means to be Catholic. What do you think, Father? I agree with that. I, I was very pleased when you said, um, taking a longer view, which Rob just reiterated. I, I was recently re-watching the first episode of Kenneth Clark's Civilization, and one of the things he points out there is that uh, a healthy civilization is taking the, the long view. And um, I don't remember what sort of panel I was on, but you know, there was sort of a bleakness of what it is to be an American now and a Catholic in America. And you know, we've had it much worse at other times. <laughs> and um, oh, it was a group of students. I'm like, you know, it's true, uh, as Robert Wilkin has pointed out, that the early church wasn't constantly under a state of persecution, but it was certainly even further out of step with Roman culture, uh, right, in trying to establish itself and understand itself. And these were people with hope and heroism who built communities and, um, and gathered around the, the living Lord, right? And that's always a joyful thing and a hopeful thing. And it's been so in every kind of human epoch. Um, and so we lose sight of that when we get, and I, you know, you, some of you at least have seen me on Twitter. I, I, I'm trying to be less awful at it, but it's very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day -day and to think I need to have an opinion on this and on that. And my opinion needs to be clever. And it also needs to be um, uh, within uh, acceptable boundaries. And so it's, it's really too much pressure to put on oneself. I guess the thing I would add to that is I asked my uh, hall staff here, I'm now running a residence hall at Notre Dame. And today uh, we had dinner together and in advance of dinner, I asked them to read C.S. Lewis's The Inner Ring. And there are so many insights there about kind of our personal vanity that gets us into politics of various sorts and worried about politics of various sorts. So we should quarterly as human beings read C.S. Lewis's The Inner Ring to cure ourselves of some of these bad habits. Thanks, Father. Billy, Michael, did either of you wanna chime in on that question real quick? No, <laughs> uh, that was uh, both um, Rob and, and Father, I think were said it all. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. Um, I would say, I think we're out of time. And so I'd like to thank the Catholic Information Center for giving us this opportunity um, as a group to, to use your platform and to um, speak to your audience. This has been a great experience. Thank you um, so much for joining us, audience, and, and to you specifically, Matthew, Bill, um, Professor uh, Michael, and Professor Rob, and, and you, Father Bill. Um, I just want to remind the audience that um, if you are interested, which I know you are, um, in this magazine, to you can go to their website to subscribe. And um, we also have physical copies here at the CIC. And I believe, Bill um, and Matthew, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we are also one of the only um, physical locations that have a physical hard copy of That's the right. first edition first, uh, uh, right now. Um, so look at this gorgeous, I mean, you can, like what they were talking about, the design. I mean, it really is. in your rare books room. <laughs> I, and then we also I, 
I miss the CIC. I used to sell it. I used to be, uh, my law firm was just up the street. I would have mass there at noon and Father Arnie was my spiritual director and a dear friend. So I'm glad. Oh yeah, we miss Father Arnie. Yeah, we still have mass at noon though. It's virtual right now for everyone watching. So um, you can join us online if you can't, um, aren't here locally in person. Um, again, thank you all so much for coming. We've got some great events lined up um, with the CIC. So be sure to join our listserv, visit our website. We have some events coming up with Carter Sneed, Arthur Brooks, um, Jennifer Frey. So we definitely have some great events uh, you know, on the calendar and we hope you can join us for that. And thank you again so much for joining us and, and to the panel again. And I hope everyone has a wonderful Monday evening and rest of the week.